media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. One of the great experiences that I had as I went to the Holy Land uh, is going uh, along the Via Della Rosa. Have you have you heard of that term? It's a Latin term. It, it means the, the the way of suffering. And if you go to the Holy Lands today, uh, you will find 14 stations along the path of Old Jerusalem. And uh, it is supposedly the pathway that Christ took. Um, I don't know how accurate some of those uh, different things that are in the Holy Lands today when they said, okay, this is where Jesus was born. And this is the, you know, the place where this happened. And, and yet they do represent very much something that is... Uh, in our mind, in our heart, that we do know that, that Christ was there. When you're on the Via Della Rosa, that is that path that Jesus takes to uh, Golgotha, to, to Calvary, um, I do believe that that's probably pretty accurate because Old Jerusalem is pretty much the same here 2,000 years later. And so a lot of those stops that they would have that you can stop and pray and think upon and ponder the work of, of the, the cross uh, is there, still there today. If you grew up with a, a Catholic, a Lutheran, an Anglican background, uh, you probably practice at this time of year the Stations of the Cross. And uh, it's one of those things, I, I think there's some beauty in that. I think that there truly is this reflective time that we would be able to go back and revisit that on, a, on an annual basis, on a regular basis, the beauty of what God has done. This is actually, you know, a map that you can get in Jerusalem today, and you could go along there, and it is very overwhelming, both emotionally and spiritually, just to, to walk the path. Uh, I mean, there are times that, you know, when you go to the Mount of Olives, and, and the Mount of Olives, as I told you before, is not a big place, and when Christ is praying over Jerusalem, and he's weeping for the city, we're not saying that he stood right here, but it's not that big of a hill. It's really not that big of a mount. Uh, Stone Mountain would be probably our, our best comparison, and so if you've ever been on the top of Stone Mountain, it, you know, it may be here or maybe here or it may be right here, but it's got to be in this close proximity. And that's what you felt as you would walk this Via Della Rosa, this pathway to the cross. And so that prompts a, a question as we start this series on the pathway to the cross uh, that I want to ask you this morning. If you, are, if you are going to start a biblical pathway to the cross... Where in the Bible would you begin? You know, we have, we have things like the Gospels. We have different things like that. Jesus curses the, the fig tree there in the Gospels. We have the, the works of uh, Passion Week. I heard somebody say something. Where would you start? Okay, the garden. I, wonderful, guys. I mean, I wondered really how many people would go back. You know, my, I, almost every chap, I mean, every uh, sermon, I make reference to Genesis 2 and 3. Because that's where the problem starts, the fall. And if we're going to start truly a pathway to the cross, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3. We have to go back to the beginning. We have to go to with Adam and Eve. And, and yes, we're familiar with those events of Passion Week, of things like when Jesus overturns the tables and uh, establishes the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper in the upper room, uh, his uh, mock trials there before Pontius Pilate. Well, we have all those different things, and we think of Easter, and we think of those Passion Week events. And yet if we were going to do a biblical study, okay, starting from how far back do we start this pathway to the cross, 
I do believe that it would start right there in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. It's that passage again that we refer to all the time because it shows us our spiritual condition. It's the passage that talks about how Adam and Eve, those two first humans that were made by God, made perfect in every way, and yet we, what we theologically call that they had the ability to sin, that they were fallibly perfect. They were perfect. God didn't make a mistake, and yet they were fallible. That is, that they did have freedom of choice. And as we go back to that in uh, Genesis 2 and 3, open your Bibles there, Genesis 2 and 3 this morning. We see that God had already created the world in Genesis 2, and he filled it with land and water and animals and fish and birds and and everything that he has made. And then he rests on the seventh day. Does he rest because he's tired? I mean, when you create the world, you would think that, you know, that's pretty overwhelming. But he's not resting because he's tired. He's God. He's resting to establish for us even a day of Sabbath, a day of rest. And so we go to Genesis chapter 2 and we see the Trinity. It doesn't use the word Trinity, but the whole Trinity is there. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit is all there. And uh, we see comments like, let us make him in our image. Who's the us? It's the full Trinity there. We see that from the very beginning. And we see the Trinity create man, Adam, from dust. That God breathes life into dust. And he fills the garden in which Adam will work and tend. And he gives one command. One command. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like that would be easy. If all you had was one command. When we used to go on trips with the youth, we said, okay, guys, we, we just have a couple commands. I figured, okay, here's the rules. You know, don't do anything to, to anybody that would hurt them in any way, physically, emotionally, spiritually, in any way, and have fun. Those were our two rules. Now, I could have made 20 rules, but I figured the first one really covered almost everything <laughs> in a forbidding sense, and the second one was kind of the aim. Okay, let's, let's have joy in this trip. Well, in the beginning, God creates man, and he gives, gives him but one command. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you will eat, it will surely you shall surely die. Then immediately after giving this command... He pronounces the first thing that is not good. If you go back and look at his creation, it says that God created and it was good. He created something, it was good. And for the first time we see in the scripture that something was not good. Now it was not good, not because God messed up, it was not because of something, but it was the plan of God. He did not want Adam to be alone. So look what he says in verse 18. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And I will make a helper fit for him. This is part of the providence of God. It's part of the plan of God. This isn't God going, you know, he looks lonely. And so let me come up with another additional human being that he can share his life with. This was always in the plans of God. And so we see this flow going. He creates the perfect partner for Adam and Eve. Uh, this old term in the King James, this help meet, help mate. That this one is a perfect complement to all the, the things that Adam would have. And, and he's the perfect complement to all of her uh, being. And, and God makes this miracle. He performs the, performs the first marriage in verse 23 and 24. Look what it says. Then the man said, this, is the last, this at last is bone of my bones 
and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Every wedding I do, I, I referred back to this. And, and the miracle there is that they didn't have a father and the mother in, in the familiar sense. God has a plan for marriage even before Adam and Eve come along. All of this shows the providence of God. All of this shows the forethought of God. God is never reacting. He's always acting. One of the things that really kind of blows our mind, because for the most part, most of us are always reacting. And yet our God is always acting, has never reacted. And that's an important point to understand as we get further in this text. Okay, so now this is where I really want you to take notice. Look at the last verse of chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It is so difficult. I've touched on this verse before in other sermons. It is almost impossible in the culture that we live not to think of this in a modern Context to, to think of this somehow in a sensual or sexual context. And I promise you, that is not why the word naked is used here. It is very much in a spiritual context. Now, physically, I do believe that they were naked, okay? So I'm not denying that, that it only is spiritual nature, but that's the heaviness. And, and this is one of those passages that it's really hard for us in our modern context not to become kind of middle schoolish and go, they were naked, and kind of take on that kind of, not so much a thought process, but that kind of rendering of what is really being said here. I promise you that even though they were physically naked, they did not have on clothes. The meaning here is not sensual. It is not sexual. It is spiritual in nature. And, and I hope to prove that or show you that in the text later on. And so Adam and Eve, they live in this world without sin, And this verse describes their lack of shame and guilt therein. They're naked and they're not ashamed. Chapter 3. We begin to see something begins to change. The word that is there in chapter 2, again, means more than just the the lack of clothing. It, It stands for so many things. They didn't need clothing. Not just from an embarrassment kind of, you know, uh, prudent kind of way. No, they didn't need clothes to keep warm. They they didn't need clothes to protect them from harmful things. It's a place of perfection. The Garden of Eden is a place of perfection. I, I love how the old commentator Matthew Henry, have you ever heard of Matthew Henry? He's kind of one of the older commentaries, uh, uh and yet he has a, a way of saying things and kind of an old language that I'm fond of from time to time. And this is what he said. He said, our first parents needed no clothes for covering against cold or heat, for neither could hurt them. They needed none for adornment. Thus easy, thus happy was main in his state of innocency. How good was God to him? How many favors did he load with him? Uh, Clothing was not an encumbrance. It wasn't something they had to go to the closet and wonder, what am I going to wear today? 
But again, don't think of it in a sexual nature. Don't think of it in a sensual nature. Think of it in a very free nature. This is God, how God has created everything. And in that state of Genesis 2, we now look at Genesis 3, and we see that in the midst of this perfection, there's one who brings temptation. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, and, and we believe that this is a representation of, of Satan himself, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Now let's answer that question. In this temptation, the first thing that he does is question God. And question, let's go ahead and say God's word. Now did we read in chapter 2 that God had one command? What was that one command? He didn't say, here's 57 commands. Here's 632. Here's a thousand commands that you need to keep a list of. One command. You can eat from any tree, but do not eat from this one tree in the middle of the garden. And so Satan, the tempter, comes and begins to put this temptation. And what is the first thing that he does to tempt mankind? Did God really say that? Is that not really the root of all sin? Isn't it really the root of all temptation? Here we can fast forward thousands and thousands of years to today. And and really, in your life, is temptation really based upon, if you have knowledge of God's word, well, did God really mean it that way? And we want to twist and turn for our own satisfaction, for our own thrill, for whatever, sometimes the very word of God. And so we see that the tactics of Satan really haven't changed in thousands of thousands of years. It was the first temptation. It really is kind of the root of most of the temptations that we see today. The initial response from Eve is correct. Look what she says in verse 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did she have a good understanding of the commands of God? Or not the commands of God, of the command of God. Let me not put a plural in there because it's very singular. And so what we see here by her first response to the serpent is not, well, you know, I don't really, it's not clear to me. I don't know Greek and Hebrew. I haven't been to seminary. I haven't done this or that. No, she is fully aware of the singular commandment from God. Don't, don't eat this. And she responds even to the temptation and the fact that, it, is that really what God said? With the response that says, that's exactly what God said. So in one way, you wish that it would end right there. But look what happens in verse 4 and 5. But the servant said to the woman, you will surely not die or you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that a lie? I see some yeses and some noes, okay? In the truest sense, it is a lie. In one way, their eyes are going to be opened, but it's not to the life uh, in, in the sense of giving more life. It is now to life and death. And so I didn't mean to trick you with that, but because I saw kind of a, a multitude of responses there. But it, but isn't that the way that Satan usually brings temptation? It's like, okay, let me say this in a way 
then in some way in your mind, you can say, well, you know. And yet, let's simply go back to the verse before. Did Eve know what God has commanded? Is it clear what God has said? He didn't hide it in the midst of a hundred different commands. She goes, you know, I'm just being forgetful today. One command. And she knows it full well. And yet the tempter comes in and the temptation comes in that one direction. Did God say this? Did God mean this? And I would challenge that the tactics have not changed in all these thousands of years. And so here she comes and and then we begin to see this uh, verse 7. Uh, where we see the, you know, that they disobey God in verse 6. And then in verse 7, we see the first effects of sin, of this disobedience to holy God in the lives of mankind. Okay, God's creation created them perfectly, but fallibly perfect. That is, they have a free will. They can choose to be obedient or disobedient. They choose to disobey. You can say, well, you know, it's not fair that they were tempted. No, what's fair there is that God only gave them one command. He made it very clear. They understood that. They make the choice to disobey God. And the first effects of sin come in verse 7. Look what happens. Then the eyes of both were opened. Isn't that kind of what Satan said in his twisted lie? Yeah. But look what they were open to. And they knew that they were naked. What was the last verse of chapter 2? They were naked and they were not, not, you know, they, they were not ashamed. And we said that, you know, that's not really a sensual, it's not really a sexual connotation, it's much more a spiritual condition. And so if we're keeping in line with this, this is not uh, all of a sudden that they go, oh my goodness, you know, I need to cover myself up because of a sexual or a sensual type of exposure, but a spiritual exposure. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What we see is the first man's reaction of works. I broke it. Something happened here. I will fix this. The first response of man. Ah, I'm at fault, but maybe I can fix it. And so we don't know if they took, you know, fig leaves and, uh, you know, exactly how that all worked. You know, did they have thread? Did they tie it together? Well, we don't know. But it says that they took, they sewed fig leaves. Somehow they had this ability and their attempt is to cover up their shame. Their eyes were open to sin. They knew that they were naked and ashamed. And they attempted to hide their shame by making clothes. Again, please do not think of this in a sensual sexual connotation, but the shame of exposure. Their sin brought about a need to hide. Would you say that here we fast forward thousands of years, does sin bring about a shame and a desire to hide? Even to this day. I used to be last week, and I actually had some good conversation with a couple people afterwards and throughout the week, uh, when I said, you know, how many of you would be totally embarrassed if all of your thoughts were displayed up on the screen this morning? And I haven't found one person yet said, man, I'm, I'm game for that. Everybody, everybody said, no, you know, wouldn't that be terrible? But we hide it, and some of us hide it really well. We hide it by trying to be very 
pious and spiritual people. Others hide it by this or that or the other. But this hiding goes on in our lives because we know the sin within us. But we know the shame that it causes in our lives. And, and this exposure is, is part of this fear that we have in life that somehow what's in my mind is going to be demonstrated to you in such a way you're going, fire the pastor today. And so we get in this habit of hiding. Started right there in the garden with the first sin and it's continued on through the millennials. Look at the response. Verse 7, and they showed, sewed fig leaves together and, and made themselves loincloths. Again, the first case, case of man trying by his own works to, to cover up something that he could not cover up. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Let's stop right there. In the past, when God would make this visitation to Adam and Eve in the garden, do you think that it was the highlight of the day, just kind of something they got you know, used to? Or do you think it was like, we better come over here in this part of the garden because God's going to show up and we better be there. Oh, do you think that this was the highlight of the day? I mean, here they have wonderful husband, beautiful wife, in perfection. They're living this most blessed, this perfect life, truly a perfect life. And yet the highlight would be the visitation of God. I truly believe that the highlight of that perfect life is that their maker, their creator, would visit them in a way that we don't fully understand what that means as, as far as did, was it, since God is spirit, did he make himself visible with this? But they knew that God was there. And I don't have to know if he was, took on form or this. They knew the presence of God was there in the cool of the day. And I promise you, that was the highlight of their day. But look what happens. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. The day that this happened, they had never hid before, never had need. They had never felt exposed before. They had never felt shame before. But now sin is in their lives and sin had brought death to their innocence. And instead of this presence of God being the highlight of the day, it becomes the point that they show their fear of a holy God in the midst of their sin. Don't let that escape you. That what had been blessed and perfect and anticipated now became dreaded. Is that what sin does in our lives? And it takes those things that are holy and blessed and, and, and good. And then sin comes into our lives and it's the very thing that we begin to hide from God. I, I've seen people before and, you know, hey, I, we haven't seen you at church and, you know, I'm not trying to be the church police here, but hey, everything okay? And you begin to talk with them and they say, well, here's what's going on in my life and, and because of sin, because of something that's in their life, they said, I, I just, you know, that's the last place I want to be. To this day, we see some of the effect of this initial sin in their lives. They're afraid of God. They had never been afraid of God before. And now they're hiding from God. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Probably one of the most prompting questions 
throughout all of human history. First of all, does God, is God clueless? Is this the first game of hide and seek and God doesn't know where Adam is? Man, you are a good hider, you know? Have you ever played hide and seek with a two-year-old? They're right behind this microphone. And you see them and what do you do? Where's Billy? Where's Billy? And Billy's giggling, he's moving because Billy can't stand still. And yet you see Billy right there. And yet you play the game. God's not playing a game here. He knows where Adam is. But just like the prophet Nathan and David, there's a purpose in God's question. There's a purpose so that David will recognize when Nathan began to tell this story. There's a purpose why God wanted Adam to recognize his sinful condition here. Where where are you? Verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Now, why was he afraid, guys? Scripturally. Because I was naked. Sensual, sexual connotation or spiritual connotation? I'm not trying to be silly. I'm not trying, I'm truly not trying to be silly here. If there was ever two bodies that did not need to be hidden, because of shame, I've put on a little weight. I don't, you know, I don't. Adam and Eve created in perfection. I believe that they were the model man and woman. I think that we would do anything to have those bodies. So they're not going, you know, I've lost some hair and kind of pudgy. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Folks, this is a spiritual condition of sin. Do you see what our sin does to us? It's brought exposure. It's brought shame. A need to hide. And though they had made an attempt to cover it up, they could not. Again, what did we read before? They made some fig leaves. So in one way, we couldn't say that it was truly naked in the sense of a sexual or a sensual or a physical way. But we're not talking physical nakedness here. We're talking a spiritual nakedness. And so even though he has put on some fig leaves and he's done that, what is this proclamation? What is, what is this honest report back to God? I, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So even though he had made the attempt to cover himself in his own works, fig leaves, he knew the vulnerability of his nakedness. And I hid myself. Is that what sin does? Have you ever noticed that when there's... uh, um, I mean, we're all sinners. We sin every day, guys. Okay? That's why it's so important that, that Christ has done a complete work. It is finished in what he has done. So that Paul could write through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is our... 
spiritual position before a holy God. And yet, have you noticed that in our daily life, that when there's sin in our lives, that we really don't want the word, we don't want God's people, we we don't want God? I mean, have you ever noticed the damper that it puts on everything spiritual in our lives? And we see the beginnings of that right here. So in the following verses, you begin to see God's judgment on sin. First, to the serpent. I, I believe that is, he's speaking of Satan here. And then to Adam and Eve, that is mankind, humanity. And in this terrible story filled with shame and guilt and loss, we see the first steps of the pathway to the cross. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. This is when he's talking to the serpent. He's talking to Satan and he's bringing judgment against him. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's kind of coded here. It's, it's kind of in a language where it just doesn't come out. Hey, one day Jesus Christ is going to come and put you in your place. And yet as we look back and we begin to see, this is what we call the first pronouncement of the gospel. In Latin, the, the proto-evangelium. The first pronouncement of the good news. Now, now get this, guys. God in his, has made everything perfect. He's only made one command. They rebel against that one command, even though they're clear to what that command is. And now he brings judgment because they're trying to hide. And in the midst of bringing holy judgment to Satan and to mankind, he pronounces the hope of the gospel. Why? Because God is always acting. He's never reacting. That's why the Bible can say before the foundation of the world that God already has Christ ready for us. I I pray that this morning you're overwhelmed by that. That God is not reacting to your sin, but he is proactive in giving us a Savior before you ever sinned. That God in his great amazing love for you, that even in this first sin, this first act of rebellion, that calls shame and everything, that God comes even in his pronouncement of judgment to Satan. This holy judgment that he has, he, he gives the announcement of the gospel. One day, the offspring of a woman, this is Christ, in full deity and yet fully man, will bring defeat to Satan. One day, Christ will defeat Satan in death with the substitutionary death on the cross. It says that he shall bruise your head and and you shall bruise his heel. Satan will bring suffering to Christ. We see that in Isaiah. We see that in the Gospels, that he did suffer. There is uh, something that Christ suffered because he did take on the full wrath of God for our sins. There is suffering there. I know we make much of the the wounds that he had, and and we should because I says because of his wounds we are healed. But again, I think he's talking much more spiritually than he is physically. And as much as it would freak us out to have nails driven to our wrist and a sword by our side, 
I think there's a spiritual meaning much deeper than those kind of wounds. That the woundedness of our sin, our nakedness before a holy God, our exposure and our shame now have been clothed by Christ. To me, this is the first steps to the cross. And it's not mentioned five chapters later. We don't have to go deep into the, you know, the New Testament to begin to see this. Folks, Adam and Eve sin. God then says, here's the hope of the gospel. As we end this morning, and before we leave this passage, let me, maybe this will be just duh to you and common understanding. But let me point out one more verse in this text that to me just overwhelms me. Remember Adam and Eve's response to their nakedness? What did they do? So together fig leaves. They they tried by their own attempt to, to clothe themselves. And again, we weren't talking sexually, sensually. We're talking spiritually. They made an attempt to somehow make themselves covered so that they could hide their shame. Verse 7 says, And they sewed together fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, trying to cover the shame and this exposure. Desperate trying to fix it. Look at verse 21, guys. Before we leave this text this morning, let's look at verse 21. He's already announced the gospel. He's already given us this picture that Christ will come. And then what does he do? Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and clothe them. Does that overwhelm you this morning? Now, there, there are all kinds of theology in there. Some people say, yeah, this is a picture where, you know, this is animal skins, and so it shows a blood sacrifice, and this is the start of the sacrificial system. There's all kinds of different theology. Let's, I, I can't believe I was about to say, let's put theology aside for the second, because that is not my mind. But, but can, we, can we just focus on the goodness of God? That in their nakedness, they attempt to cover it themselves. God brings judgment, holy judgment. And, and you can find it there for Eve, and you can find it there for Adam, and you, you re- read the rest of the verses, and, and now life is really tough and hard, and they're going to sweat and toil. And yet in all the midst of that judgment on sin, he brings the hope of the gospel And he closed them in the midst of their nakedness. Isaiah would say it this way in Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. And he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We go to the New Testament and it talks about robes of righteousness. It's really the kind of the core of the meaning of 2 Corinthians 5.21. God took all of our sin and placed it on Christ and took all of his righteousness and put it on us. In the midst of our sin, folks, in the midst of our nakedness, in the midst of our shame and our guilt and our desire to hide, God puts forth Christ as the answer. And he clothes us in his righteousness. 
Let's pray this morning. Father, we love you. What an incredible love you have for us, Father. That in the midst of our nakedness, Father, you have clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. And Father, I pray today if there's someone here that does not know you, Father, that Father, today that that you would show them, Father, make them aware of this is why they're trying to hide. This is their nakedness, Father. And that you have not reacted to that situation, but Father, before the foundation of the world, you had provided a Savior to clothe them in righteousness. Draw them to you this day, Father. Open their eyes to their sin and to the sufficiency of your Savior. Father, I pray this morning for Christians that, Father, that that we would never become complacent about our sin. That, Father, that even though we may be positionally saved and secured by your grace and the work of Christ, that, Father, this effect of sin can happen in our lives as we allow sinfulness to become a lifestyle. And, Father, that it can lead to a place of shame and guilt and wanting to hide from you. So, Father, will you lead us in confession and say, God, will you give me victory? I, I know you've done that positionally in Christ. Will you do that practically? Will you let me overcome this in my life so that I get thrilled about being in your word? I get thrilled about going to church. I, I get thrilled with knowing that you will walk with me in the cool of the evening. Father, what a good father you are. What a good God you are. How deep is your love, Father, for us? And so, Father, we make much of you. We make much of Christ. We make much of the victory, Father, as we take this pathway over the next five weeks to head to this place of redemption and the beauty of an empty tomb. For we pray it in the one that made it possible, Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.